Welcome to the Emerging Litigation Podcast, he said enthusiastically. This is Tom Hagee, um, producer, and uh, I'm with HB Litigation Conferences. This is a collaboration between my company and Fastcase and Law Street Media and Docket Alarm. In this episode, we're going to talk about ransomware and how companies who are hit with ransomware attacks go about getting or not getting insurance. But in this case, it's about getting insurance. First, a couple of, uh, I don't know what you call them, fun facts. What is there fun about ransomware? Guess if you're the criminal, it's a hootenanny. The cost of ransomware to businesses is estimated to have doubled since 2019 to $20 billion. Billion with a B, that's according to Covware. Uh, policyholders obviously then turned their insurance policies to recover losses. And the losses, again, according to Covware, the average is more than $230,000 per incident. That's a lot of Bitcoin. To the folks at Kaspersky, did I say that right? Let me take another look. Yes, Kaspersky. In their studies, they've shown that 56%, that's more than half, 56% of ransomware victims paid the ransom to restore access to their data. And according to a global study of 15,000 consumers conducted by Kaspersky, um, only 17% of those who paid the ransom did not guarantee the return of the stolen data. For 17% of those who paid it, they did not guarantee the return of the stolen data. This is an argument for uh, the wisdom of age. The older you are, the less likely you are to pay <laughs> uh, these this ransom. Yeah, let's, let's see here. How much was it? About two-thirds. Oh, this, is, this is according to the survey. People 35 to 44 years old, uh, two-thirds of those admitted to paying. <laughs> it's just the ones who admitted it. So that's 65% of people in in their uh, mid to mid 30s to mid 40s admitted to paying the ransomware. That's just over. Let's compare that to over half of those uh, who are younger. So let's see here. The younger ones actually uh, paid at a lower rate. So that could be just because they don't have the money. You know, you're 16 to 24. You're not going to pay the ransomware, and you're savvy enough to know better. However, when you get older, when you get hit uh, the ripe age of 55, only 11% of us, those of us in that group, uh, are likely to pay. So there you have it, young folks, older people. We couldn't give you more than two sentences on what Bitcoin is. Hell, I don't, I'm not sure I could give you one. But we know not to pay ransomware. Maybe that's why we don't pay it, because we don't know how to use Bitcoin. That just occurred to me. When the, uh, the ransomware victim uh, then uh, pays the ransom, then they turn to their insurance companies. I probably don't have their order right, but you know, they turn to their insurance companies, and the insurance company either will or won't uh, pay the insurance. And this, this, is, this is where disputes uh, are born. And uh, so, like I said, the, the insurance company either will or won't cover. In this case, today, we're going to talk about one where they didn't pay. And litigation ensued, and decisions were made, and that's what we're going to talk about. 
Recently, a, an important decision came down favoring policyholders. It was a case from the lonely Supreme Court in the Midwest, uh, the Indiana Supreme Court. So why is this such a big deal? So to answer those questions, I've got Scott Goddess, who's a partner with Barnes & Thornburg, who co-authored a, uh, a, uh, an article. It's called an article for the Journal on Emerging Issues and Litigation, which is the companion to this podcast. In his article, he discusses this Supreme Court decision and uh, why it's so important. Why is it a big deal just from one court, one Supreme Court in Indiana? No offense to Indiana, but it's one court. So why is that a big deal? Well, Scott knows, and Scott's going to tell us why. I've had the pleasure of working with Scott on conferences and articles for many years. He spoke at a uh, one of our great uh, asbestos conferences years ago, back when we were doing conferences, back when we were doing asbestos conferences. Always brings his A game. It was a pleasure. He was a busy guy, but he was able to make some time to chat with me about this case and to write this article. And I only know a little bit more about Scott than his bio reveals, such as his his amateur gymnastics experience. Do I need to say amateur, or is, are there professional gymnasts, I guess? Maybe Cirque du Soleil? I don't know. I didn't ask him that question. So if he listens to this, he can tell me. So his experience in gymnastics, if I were cynical, I would say gymnastics is a great skill to have if you're an attorney. But I'm not cynical, and therefore I will deny ever having said that. With that, I am pleased to stop talking and get to my conversation with Scott Goddess of Barnes & Thornburg about insurance coverage for ransomware. Hope you enjoy it. So Scott Goddess, thank you for doing this today. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Tom. So what we're talking about, I gave in the introduction some of the, uh, some of the background on ransomware and the attack, but uh, what can you tell us about the ransomware attack on G&G Oil and its efforts to obtain coverage? It was a pretty standard ransomware from the information that was available on the record. And what I mean by that is they, they suspect and, and on remand to the trial court, we'll have a discussion about how the ransomware actually got into the system. So there was an indication that it came in originally from a spear phishing email which led to the download of malware. And then eventually the, the hackers were able to lock up the system. And so that's how it got in. And as usual, and the hacker said, okay, you've got to pay us if you want to open your system back up. Mm-hmm. So, so then there was a question of, well, how much should we, you know, will this work? There are always questions of whether crazily enough hackers are actually honorable thieves insofar <laughs> as they will actually unlock the system after you get them the money in the form of Bitcoin. And so G&G Oil sent over one Bitcoin and they got some things in good faith and they paid the full three Bitcoins. So, so this is not a gigantic amount of ransom. The hackers refused to unlock the system after they said three Bitcoin would do it. And they required another Bitcoin to be paid for the system ultimately to be unlocked. It's pretty common for paying the ransom to actually unlock the systems. And, and again, the reason is that if criminals who do this get known to mislead you and, and fraudulently induce you to send Bitcoin, then word will get around. And so if they want to be a repeat player, again, crazily enough, they have mm-hmm. to honor their demand. 
So we're a trusted criminal. All right. So then, <laughs> for better or so for worse, it's in their brochures. So then, what <laughs> happened uh, from from an insurance perspective? So they went to their crime insurance carrier and they asked for coverage. And they had a, a commercial package policy with computer fraud coverage, and the carrier said no, which is what led to the lawsuit. They refused to cover, and they said, not only does computer fraud not cover in terms of a coverage part, but you also had the chance to buy a different coverage in this policy that would have applied, and, and so therefore, you're, you're out of luck. All right, so this uh, went to the, uh, the Court of Appeals in Indiana, then, then went up to the Supreme Court of Indiana, and you in your article, you wrote about about that decision, and you said there were kind of three key takeaways in the in the piece. And you said first, uh, the decision from the Supreme Court affirms important rules of interpretation for insurance policies. So, what did you mean by that? Insurance policies are contracts, and so we apply rules of interpreting contracts when when in, interpreting what they say and what they mean. But Indiana Supreme Court reaffirmed that. They're contracts, but they're special contracts. And they are generally seen as contracts of adhesion, which means that the insurance industry writes these policies. You don't have the opportunity to go to an insurance carrier and say, here's the kind of uh, insurance that I want. Let me tell you what I'm going to write for you. And then you underwrite it. And, and that was actually a similar question that came up at the oral argument was, should we continue to follow these these rules have been around for a while regarding the interpretation of insurance policies. So they were setting up the opportunity to perhaps undo decades of precedent that that policies are construed strictly in favor of coverage, construed strictly against the drafter. And so it was really refreshing to see that this decision reaffirmed and confirmed these longstanding rules regarding interpretation of insurance policies even though at bottom they are they are contracts and a lot of insurance company lawyers say, well, they're contracts and that's that's how you have to treat them, but they're special and Indian Supreme Court reaffirmed that. Your second point was that uh, the, the court found that the phrase, quote, fraudulently cause a transfer, end quote, uh, mm-hmm. unambiguously can apply in these situations. The questions that come up on that issue relate to to how the computer is used. And when it comes to crime insurance policies, the insurance industry, or better yet, their, their outside coverage counsel will say that a phrase like that requires the computer itself to have taken action. And so it would require, for example, a hacker to have gotten into the computer and actually cause the transfer of funds directly by using the computer itself and, and by causing the transfer by inserting certain code or typing in certain commands, again, all by a hacker. And then if it's not by a hacker or if it's not using the computer, qua computer, then this coverage does not apply. And the Indiana Supreme Court rejected that that premise, which was, again, a, a really nice holding for policyholders. Uh, and the third point, you said they um, they discussed the, uh, the losses, quote, res- that they resulted directly from the use of a computer. Why is that significant? Resulting directly is is a question that has led to a pretty remarkable amount of litigation when it comes to insurance coverage questions. You wouldn't think that a pretty simple phrase like resulting directly or direct loss would lead to uh, hundreds of cases, but you'd be wrong. Um, 
and and courts are pretty mixed in terms of how they interpret it. So the industry said here, the insurance company said here, like the insurance industry has said elsewhere, there there can't be any intervening steps. There it has to be immediate, and that you, you push a key, then that's exactly how the next thing that happens is the money's gone for that kind of coverage to apply. And so they've said things like if too many days elapse or too many hours elapse, uh, or if there are too many steps in between, then that means it didn't result directly. And so the court walked through that, the court rejected it, and the court applied a approximate cause analysis and talking about the, but for the, the ransomware, would this have happened? And that really is a refreshing and nice result to see. They didn't make it unbelievably narrow. Uh, they didn't narrow the clause as some other courts have done, and they were not persuaded by the idea that there were too many things in between. They, they said that, it, again, the proximate cause analysis is, is enough to carry the day. So wait, you're saying that disagreement over the meaning of one word would be a, a big, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> I think for a moment, I think, I, I know you're not talking to me because I spent 10 years of my life writing about your cases and everybody else's cases on what sudden meant. <laughs> <laughs> and right. And so, so that's the same sort of thing that's happening here that they have suggested that resulting directly and, and courts really have interpreted it in three different ways. And one is whether it means third-party liability versus first-party coverage, whether it means uh, approximate cause analysis that can include a third-party liability or whether it means something remarkably narrow with no steps in between that what is seen as the the originating cause in any intervening steps. So a lot of insurance lawyers have spent a lot of time on the meaning of those those couple of words, which I suppose, as you've say, knowing the history of insurance litigation is not really surprising. The Emerging Litigation Podcast is sponsored in part by Fastcase Legal Research. For over 20 years, Fastcase has been providing industry-leading tools to solo lawyers, law firms, and bar associations across the country with the goal of making legal research easier and more intuitive. Aside from delivering a vast database of cases, statutes, regulations, court rules, and more, there's always more, FastCase is integrated with powerful digital applications like Docket Alarm, my favorite, like Docket Alarm that help bring your legal research to the next level. And it really does. So get off this level. Whatever level you're on, you want to get to the next level. And that's what you can do with FastCase. For more information on what, on, uh, let's just say which, for more information on which FastCase solutions are right for you, visit FastCase.com or send a message to sales at FastCase.com. The overarching question is, this is the Indiana Supreme Court. No offense to Indiana, but it's one state. Uh, why is this a big deal? It's a big deal in that there are only so many state Supreme Court decisions on coverage. Indiana decided to take this up on appeal. They, they accepted the transfer from the Court of Appeals. They, they reconfirmed basic principles that virtually every state follows in terms of interpreting insurance policies. And there's not a lot of case law out there regarding coverage for ransomware. There's, there's, there are very few decisions in total to have a state Supreme Court weigh in on coverage for ransomware, which is an area that has, has very, very little case law, and have them confirm how the policy should be interpreted, and have them confirm the idea that policies that don't have the title of cyber insurance can provide coverage is a big deal because 
other courts will look at this and other courts when they're considering the same coverage will will see that one court has come down this way, a state Supreme Court. And perhaps most important, there are states like Indiana and Georgia that have said that when there are even conflicting decisions on interpreting an insurance policy term, that's evidence of ambiguity. So that means that this is a, a very reasonable interpretation. And a court might say, well, I also have another reasonable interpretation, but that means that there are two reasonable interpretations. And when there are two reasonable interpretations of an insurance policy, that evidences ambiguity. And when language is ambiguous and ambiguous in an insurance policy, it's supposed to be construed in favor of coverage. So this is a really nice marker for people considering coverage to, to keep in mind and to, to demonstrate to other courts, hey, this is a very reasonable interpretation, again, from a state Supreme Court. And to the extent that there's another interpretation offered, all that shows at best is ambiguity. And an ambiguous language is supposed to be construed in favor of cover. I don't know why this is top of mind, but it reminds me of a jury. If one person right. says there's reasonable doubt, uh, I guess this is this is showing that in, in it works in the policyholders' favor if one court says one thing and another court says another. Well, that's ambiguity, and therefore you might win as the policyholder. That's exact. That's exactly right. And to have this in hand from a from a state supreme court is really important. I mean. What's funny about the question is that the insurance industry will wave around any decision they can get on a new issue as if it's United States Supreme Court authority. And so, for example, there was an early decision on coverage for data breaches under general liability policies that was issued from a state court judge from the bench. And they acted as though it was United States Supreme Court authority that was binding on every data breach coverage case that was out there. And so to have something from a state Supreme Court that goes the right way is is really nice to be able to assert as persuasive authority in a brief that, that might come about. Well, once again, you've, you've taken a complicated subject that made it nice and simple. So even I can understand it. Are, are you handling other uh, matters dealing with ransomware? Yeah, the ransomware matters and the insurance questions can be busy um, pretty much every day. Yeah, great. And, uh, and then maybe if we get more time, you can tell me about how you can't do an Iron Cross and never could. Well, maybe I have it wrong. Isn't that where you just stand with your arms straight out, right? Yeah, it's no? just straight out. I mean, I was able to get, you know, somewhat the way down, but not straight out. That's... Oh, okay. I swore I saw a picture. Well, anyway, when we I were mean, teenagers... I, I, we... You may have seen me do a muscle up at one point, but uh, not, okay. the, not the flat out iron cross. That's beyond me. <laughs> so, so Scott Goddess, uh, insurance coverage attorney and gymnast. All right, man. Who can't ever do an iron cross. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Have a good rest of the day. Good seeing you, Thanks, Tom. Scott. So that wraps up another episode of the Emerging Litigation Podcast brought to you by HP Litigation Conferences, my company, in collaboration with Fastcase and Law Street Media and Docket Alarm. If you have any ideas about uh, future topics, want to participate, or just want to tell us how awesome Scott was, you can write to me at editor at litigationconferences.com. I want to thank Scott again for doing this, and uh, thank you for listening. It's one of those things where... Um, 
it's and I know I can be a pain about uh, about you know saying okay to these things, but um, you mean like you wouldn't do a webinar for me? <laughs> you know, and so the reason I and then you did it, I know I practically forgotten about it. <laughs> you know you haven't. 